Last week we looked at uh, the introduction to our little series here on Christianity, cults, and religions. And uh, one thing we talked about last week was that this is a very practical study because we're surrounded by people of different faiths, of different cultic backgrounds, religions, all kinds of things. And First um, Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer um, to anyone who asks for your reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness in and respect. And so we want you to be able to think biblically about the various cults and religions. Uh, we want to help you identify, understand, and answer people's questions when it comes to cults and religions, and also be able to evangelize these people with uh, clarity, conviction, and confidence so we're not overwhelmed by all the things we hear. So tonight we're going to look at essential Christian doctrine. And uh, last week we looked at recognizing and responding to claims and contradictions of the various world cults and world religions. Um, if you look at Jude chapter th- or Jude three and four verses three and four, it says this: "Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you." And Jude says, "To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation." ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And Jude writes that because that was happening even in that time in the New Testament, not too far after the time of Christ Himself. Even Paul wrote Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13-14. to 14, He says, uh, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that you are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And then he says this, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think sometimes we forget that the Lord has deposited um, something good to us in the truth that we have. Literally, the good deposit is what that that should read. And... um, It tells us that it's this once-for-all faith. It's delivered once for all. It doesn't change after that. So our questions basically are, how do we defend this? How do we guard it? Well, first of all, we have to know what it is, right? We have to know what this standard is that we're to guard that's been entrusted to us. And so tonight, we're going to go over these essential Christian doctrines just in a very superficial way. And it provided verses there pretty much for each one. You can look into it further. We'll comment on some of those. But for the most part, this is just going to be an overview. But we need a standard to know what we're to believe and to why we're to believe that. If we don't have a standard, then you don't know where you're at. Okay? Um, We also need to know the truths that set apart Christianity from every other cult and world religion. Okay? There are certain truths that set our faith in Christ apart from every other world religion. And the truth is, is that God has revealed himself to us, right? And he's done that in two ways. 
He's done that through general revelation. We've talked about this before. Uh, through nature. Okay, it's hard to go out and you look at the beauty of creation. You don't just say, oh, I guess it just appeared here for out of nowhere. Um, that's kind of a ridiculous argument when you think about it. Um, when you come to this church, you realize there's buildings here. You don't just say, well, these just appeared one day. No, you, you know that somebody took time to purchase the property, to create the plans, to, to pass the permits, to do everything they need to construct these buildings. People did it. Well, the same thing. When we look at creation, um, he, God has revealed himself in nature and creation. In Psalm 19.1, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim what? His handiwork. His handiwork. All right? Um, the wonder of the earth all around us uh, is just an amazing testimony of the glory of God. And then you just think of yourself, myself. You know, we ourselves bear the image of God, the Bible says. That we are created in God's image. Um, we have characteristics. If you stop and think about it, human beings have characteristics that really set us apart from everything else around us. Okay, we're not like dogs, we're not like monkeys, we're not like so many of the other animals. We have certain characteristics that specifically set us apart. Uh, Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, Paul writes, have been clearly perceived. In other words, they've been understood. doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And then Paul says, so they are without excuse. And if you continue to read down through, or you read the the first chapter of Romans, you see what happens to a society when they reject that truth. When they turn their back on the truth that God is the Creator, that God has shown His glory to us through His creation. It leads to the downfall, literally, of that society. And we see that going on even now, today. So we know that there's someone there. We know that he's mighty. We know that he's wise. I mean, he came up with all this. But that's only limited um, general revelation. Okay? That's not really enough to save somebody. All right? So what did God do? So he, gave, he gives us special revelation. Okay? He gives us the Scriptures. Which is just amazing when you stop and think about it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the Bible says there, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were what? Carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the book you hold in your hand called the Bible, it's not just a book. It's a divinely inspired, God-breathed document. Um, it's not a collection of opinions. It is divinely inspired, it's infallible, and it's inerrant. Um, Paul writes to Timothy also in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, look at what he says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why, Paul? That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, God wants us to be complete. He wants us to be equipped. He doesn't want us to be Christians that are going around, you know, uh, with without the proper 
material, without the proper equipment to do what he's called us to do. He's already given that to us. And that's we find that through his word. I mean, I think as believers, as we look at the religious, the world religious kind of landscape, all the different world religions, all the different cults, we really should be appreciative that our Bible, the book of faith, stands head and shoulders above all else. It really does. Um, it, it doesn't even hold, you know, other books, sacred books, do not even hold a candle to it. Um, you can compare this to the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu writings. You can compare it to the Quran. You can compare it to the Book of Mormon, Dianetics. Okay, all these crazy things that people come up with. And you'll find that this book, the Bible, by the, by the literal virtual fulfillment of the prophecies contained in it over the years, over the centuries, and by vir- virtue of the, the historical accuracy of the accounts found within it, it's true. Okay, it's a true account. If you turn to the Gospel of Luke or you turn to the book of Acts, you'll see kind of stunning detail that has been confirmed by archaeological discoveries and other means over the many years. There's been stories of archaeologists looking for a lost city here. And some biblicist comes along and says, you know what, the Bible says it's over. Oh, I wouldn't be over there. You know, we know better. And finally, they get so frustrated, they take the, the Bible scholars' uh, advice and they start digging where they say, and you know what, they find what they're looking for. See, I mean, the Bible does not lie, beloved. And so it's, it's infallible in every way. And you stop and you think of the preservation of the Bible. I mean, just over the years, from its inception up to its translation, the whole process, how God has preserved this book for us through thousands of years. The Bible stands worthy alone of our confidence as having every available evidence of having been inspired and having been also preserved by God himself. It's not a mistake that we hold in our hands the truth, the word of God. Um, A lot of men have sacrificed tremendously to get these words into our hands. And we shouldn't just take that for granted. Um, So from the Bible, we, we really want to derive that standard, that baseline, that good deposit, that treasure, the truth that unites all of us in Christ. And so tonight we're going to talk about the essentials. Now, Bear in mind the distinction between orthodoxy and heresy. There's a distinction. Last week, we looked at heresy a little bit. We looked at the definition. It means choice or faction. It's any teaching that contradicts another teaching that has been accepted as the norm. That's how I would define heresy. And it's important that we we understand that. Um... We're not talking about insignificant secondary matters of opinion. We're not talking about things like, you know, uh, what, what form of baptism you perform or what is your belief in the end times. Even those things are very important, 
Okay, we're not talking about those secondary issues. We're talking about something that if it's denied or if it's distorted, it would literally threaten the entire structure of our faith. So we're not talking about side issues. We're not talking about whether you do communion once a month or three times a month or every week or whatever. And those things people disagree on. And we know that to be true. Um, we shared this definition last week. Alistair McGrath says, heresy, heresy is best seen as a form of Christian belief that ultimately ends up subverting, destabilizing, destroying the core of the Christian faith. Okay? And so we need to be reminded of that. Heresy isn't something that's just some kind of an innocent uh, disbelief. Heresy is literally the opposite of orthodoxy. You've heard the word orthodoxy. What it comes from is two Greek words, ortho meaning straight and doxa meaning belief or opinion. It's the opposite of heresy. Arrhenius used this word orthodox to characterize his own teachings all the way back in A.D. 130. And the word heresy to define those of his adversaries. And so even the church fathers used these words. Now, when you have the word orthodox capitalized, just for your own information, a lot of times you'll see Greek orthodox. Well, that's referring to, or Russian orthodox, that's referring to a denomination. Okay, we're not talking about that. That refers to church bodies usually in, in Eastern Europe. But um, we're, we're talking about something that's just straight. Something It's a straight opinion. It's a straight, straight belief. So our challenge is how do we recognize and resist... That which is heresy, right? We don't want to believe that. And how do we hold fast to that which we would call beliefs that are orthodox, that are fundamental to the Christian faith? Well, we have a wonderful tool. History has given us a wonderful tool. It comes right from the early church. Um, We have what we call the creeds. Okay, we have the creeds. A creed is simply this. It's a brief authoritative formula of religious belief. You want to define a creed? It's just a brief authoritative formula that describes religious belief. And see, the creeds were established early on in the early church to help distinguish between essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine for the faith. Uh, They help us to identify incorrect false teachings of the faith. They express the faith in a simple and memorable way. They also are simple enough that even a child can memorize a creed. Some of us grew up in the Catholic Church. Do you remember what creed we memorized? The Apostles' Creed, right? And and we we remembered that. And so, um, and that's the first creed that is one of the the ones that history records for us the apostles creed it says simply this i believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth i believe in jesus christ god's only son our lord who was conceived by the holy spirit born of the virgin mary suffered under pontius pilate was crucified died and was buried he descended into the grave catholic church and some creeds or some creeds say he descended into hell Okay, um, and that creates a whole controversy, and that wasn't really added there till later. So it, a lot of people believe that he 
descended into the grave is the proper translation because Christ did not go to hell to pay for our sin. Um, he went to preach uh, uh, victory over those who were held captive there, but he didn't, he didn't go there because on the cross he said what? It was finished. Okay? Some of the charismatic teachers say, oh, no, no, he had to go to hell and suffer. That's, that's a heresy. <laughs> on the third day, it says he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, little c, Catholic basically means universal body of believers. Okay, it's not a capital C. It's not saying I believe in the Holy Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> okay, Catholic just means universal. It's not a bad word. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church has made it a, a word in question. So it says the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We should all say amen to that. That's, that's what we believe, right? We, we sing that song. Um, what is the name of the song? We Believe or whatever? Yeah, yeah, that song we sing. It's, it's basically, this put this to music when you stop and think about it. I mean, you know, so you have the Apostles' Creed. It's a very basic, short thing that shows you, takes all these doctrines and kind of puts them in so many words. That's what a creed does. All right? The creed is called the Apostles' Creed not because it was produced by the apostles themselves, but because it contains a brief summary overview of their actual teachings, okay, through biblical literature. Um, and so it's, it's a good creed to know. The next one is the Nicene Creed from the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. It was adopted in the face of a Arian, A-R-I-A-N, controversy. Arius, who was basically a member of the clergy of Alexandria, objected um, to, he, he began to, to uh, blur the distinction between the father and the son. Um, and he said, well, they're all, it's all one. And they, they had to stand up and say, well, no, wait a minute, that's not true. And so these creeds kind of put what we believe as Christians and what they believed in the early church as biblical doctrine and surmised it. And it was also uh, revised later at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then you had the uh, Athanasian Creed. This is in A.D. 451. And, and these are all basically wondrous expressions of the glory of God, what he's done, who Christ is. And you can look all these up and go through them. We're not going to go through them all tonight. And then you also, we also had the, the, the definition of the uh, Chalcedon, AD 451. So all these are basically important. The last three, which is kind of interesting, were written in response to serious heresies about who God is and about who Jesus Christ is. So the early church was dealing with her heretical teachings. And they said, you know what, we need to come up with a document that says what we believe. And so that's the last three of those four there. And so based on these creeds, we want to kind of go over quickly about 12 essential basic doctrines that interlock us as believers in the Christian faith. These are things that have been time-tested um, to help us contrast what we believe against the core of counterfeit claims of the cults and all the other religions. 
All right, these are these are must. We must believe these things. So the first one deals with God's unity. And you can look these verses up on your own, but we'll, we'll just go through some of them. Um, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Okay, God is a God of unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes there, For although there are many... There may be so-called gods, little g, in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and through whom all things exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Well, this flies in the face of cults like the Mormons and the Hindus who believe they don't even know how many gods they believe in. Okay. Um, so we have God's unity. We also have the Trinity. Second um, Thessalonians 1, 2, Paul says, Grace to you. Here we, we see part of the Trinity is God the Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is our Father. Okay? That's one part of the Trinity. John 1, 1, we know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, uh, the word was with God, and the Word was God. The word speaking of Jesus Christ. Okay, speaking of the Father is God, speaking of Christ is God, and even in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Matthew says, Go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and guess who he includes? Well, who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, and so it's kind of important that we realize that the Bible does teach us the Trinity. This is something Dave Bowen gave me a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it just describes as a good picture of how we can visualize the Trinity. All right. Um, there's more than 60 passages in the Bible that deal with the three persons of the Godhead mentioned together. Okay. This isn't something that church just made up. Um, the Trinity is not an invention. The Trinity is basically the conclusion that we draw based from, because you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. Okay, it's just an expression of the conclusion that we draw based from all the total witness of Scripture that there's only one God and yet there are three persons who are called God through three distinct personages. And yet the three are not each other and yet the three persons are the one God. Now, if you can understand that, you're much brighter than I am. Okay, that's way up there. That's, that, that's in the area of my ways are not your ways, says God, right? Because you're not going to understand that. You know, when you say, okay, wait a minute, one plus one plus one equals one. What, what, what do you mean? Uh, it, it's hard to comprehend. But this little diagram there kind of shows you how this can be true. Um, but once again, the cults, anything that's, any of these essential doctrines that we're going to be looking at tonight, you're going to find a cult that stands in the way and says, no, 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 don't believe that, believe this. Sure enough, the Jehovah Witnesses, they teach that only the Father is God. As do many other groups, by the way. So we also have, not just the Trinity, but we also have the human depravity, the, the doctrine of human depravity. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 
to 20, you can read that whole passage yourself, but that's the passage that tells us there's no, not one righteous, no one seeks after God, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, the idea that the human race is a depraved, sin-stained, sin-filled race. That's what we are. Uh, John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered them and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus say that? Because in your depravity, you can't see God. You need a new birth. You need to be born again. You need to be born from above, that means. Which means that, that God is, is the one who is, is creating, doing that. But once again, the cults and the world religions don't believe that. Mary Bakey Eddy in the Christian Science tells us that not only death, not only sickness, but sin is also an illusion. They're all illusions. They're not real. Uh, other cults, on the other hand, teach that everyone is born good. Even despite the evidence that we find within ourselves at times, right? We're all, we're all good. We're all good. Um, so what's the solution? You know, we have God. We have the triune God. Here we are. We're depraved beings steeped in our sin. Well, what does God do? Out of His love for us, what's He do? He sends His Son, right? To, to pay a price, for our sin, because our sin needed to be forgiven. Our sin needed to be paid for. And he realized real quick that we were so depraved, we could never pay for it ourselves. That's a train to nowhere. Um, well, how does he send his son? When he asked, the next one is the virgin birth. Okay, the virgin birth. We find that in Luke. We find that in the Gospel of Matthew, all the Gospels. But and then you see here in... in uh, uh, in each one of these Gospels, it speaks of the incarnation. In other words, where, where Jesus actually became a human being, right? Where Jesus became a human being via this miraculous conception of Mary in Mary's womb. Uh, this is not what the Mormons hold to. Remember last week I told you the Mormons believe that the Father literally had relations. God the Father literally had relations with Mary because he's a human being. So he can do that. Um, Reverend Moon, on the other hand, teaches that it wasn't God the Father, it was Zachariah who had relations with Mary, which is kind of a weird thing, but that's what they believe. And so when you stop and you think about it, you know, Christ needed to be born of a virgin, all right? And that kind of brings us to the next one, the sinlessness of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, because that's his sinlessness is contrasted with our what sinfulness. OK, that's why we needed a sinless savior, because we are so sinful in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. It says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Yet without sin, Christ lived a perfect life. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, he made him, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Think about that for a second. The perfect Lamb of God who didn't even know sin became sin for us. 
and took all that wrath of God on the cross and through His judgment and paid, atoned for our sins so that we might be become the righteousness of God. Verse 21 says there. Well, we also know that it speaks of Christ. The Bible speaks of Christ's deity. Um, just in way of His uh, sinlessness here, Norman Geisler said this. He said, what is at stake here is Jesus' ability to represent us before God and thus to provide salvation for us. See, if, if Jesus was not sinless, okay, He couldn't provide anything for us. <laughs> if He even had one sin, He would be disqualified from paying for a debt that no one could ever pay. Okay? And so that's really what's at stake here is the, His ability to represent us before God and provide salvation for us. Um, and yet, most Christian or most cults would deny something like this. Uh, the, 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 have you ever heard of the Christadelphians? I see an ad for, in the paper once in a while with them. Um, they teach that Jesus had a sin nature. Um, have you ever heard of a group called the Family? Uh, they're also known as the Children of God. They're another American cult. They started back in the 1960s in Southern California. They actually go before that. They go beyond that. Not only that Jesus had a uh, sinful nature, and this is just total heresy, but this is what they teach. They teach that Jesus was this promiscuous guy and that he probably even had STDs. That's what they teach. Yeah, it's so bizarre. And, you know, it's, it's what's hard to believe is they embrace so much of the, the other doctrines that people agree with, and then they slip this in there. Some of these groups even have their children's videos for sale in Christian bookstores. You'd never know that they were, they were sold by that. I don't know. I don't know why they even believe what they believe. I have the slightest idea. I'm not really a student of their beliefs, but that's one thing that they, they believe. Um, so Christ's deity, we see in, first, or in John chapter 1, Verses 1 and 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, through Christ, and without Him, not anything was made that was made. Alright, this speaks of Christ being divine, being God, in every respect. Um, when you go through the book of Acts and you begin to read, you'll see constant this phrase, Jesus is Lord. That word Lord, kurios, Speaks of his deity, okay, supreme over all others. Um, well, once again, the cults don't agree. The, the Mormons teach that Jesus was the senior child born to the heavenly Father through probably his senior wife, because <laughs> they had many. And uh, among his brothers, one was Lucifer of all people. So it's just bizarre stuff, right? It's like where do they? How do they make this stuff up? Uh, and they believe that Jesus had to go through this progression, through this physical incarnation, and then he had to enter into his third state to become God, according to Mormonism. And that's their whole belief system. Um, so when you stop and you think about that, I put a little thing in there, I think it's in your outline, a little thing of the deity of Christ, and you can look at uh, in your notes there what that speaks of. But we also, along with the deity of Christ, we have to stop and say, well, wait a minute. He was not only God, right? But he was what? He was man. He was human. 
Okay? And 1 John 1, it says, The Word became flesh, 1.14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay? Or if you look over at Hebrews chapter 1, we've looked at this before too, but this speaks directly to the idea that Christ came down as a human being. It says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken, past tense, to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me as a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, make his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, speaking to the Son, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So we see Christ's deity and his humanity in that verse. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Uh, Paul points that out there, that he was begotten of a woman. Also, 1 John 4, we went through this verse when we were in uh, 1 John. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know... Um, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has what? Come in the flesh is from God. It's kind of interesting that God would put that in the, the Bible. You want to know a cult? You want to know somebody who teaches heresy? Ask them what they believe about Christ. Not just His deity, but about His humanity. Did He come in the flesh? And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Um, See, we we need both the deity and the humanity of Christ because by that, we have access to God's grace. We have access to God's grace. And that's another essential doctrine. If you get God's grace wrong, you could be labeled a heretic. Um, Romans 5.10 says, while we were... Uh, yet sinners, we, uh, we, or for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, the idea that God's grace has done just that, reconciled us, means bring us back into our right standing with God. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Paul says he, he saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. All right? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But once again, we have a a Christian doctrine here, a central Christian doctrine, 
and the cults are quick to answer. The Mormons teach that we are saved by grace. Here's what they say. Only after you do everything you can do. In other words, you have to do everything you can do and then God's grace kicks in. That's what they believe. I mean, when's the last time you did everything you could do? Think about it. This is kind of a, kind of a crazy statement to make, right? None of us could ever say that. None of us could say, oh yes, I've done all that I can do. No. So they don't believe that God's grace. It's a religion of works. And then that leads to God's faith. Or I mean our faith gifted to us by God, for by grace you've been saved through faith. All right? It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one should boast. But the Jehovah Witnesses are right there um, saying that apart from grace and faith, you must also belong to Jehovah's one true organization to see eternal life. If you don't belong to our organization... Um, you cannot experience eternal salvation even though you may have experienced God's grace. Uh, that's not enough. You have to belong to our little church, our little cult, really. Um, which brings us to Christ's atoning death. Okay, and this is very central to our faith. Um, Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26 Paul says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, all right, a, a uh, satisfaction, a payment by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the Bible clearly teaches that Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. That the death on the cross by Christ was a full and final payment. And it completely satisfied God for our salvation. We know that to be true because not only did Jesus say it was finished, right? At the end when he died. But what happened three days later? Christ rose. Okay, that was kind of like God cashing that check. That yeah, it, it actually cleared the bank. Um, the Mormons teach that there are some sins so serious that you literally have to shed your own blood. Literally. They believe this. Um, that's how you pay for those sins. So they don't believe only in the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Um, Islam undercuts the cross and the atonement of Christ by teaching that Jesus didn't die on the cross at all. So they just throw the whole thing out. Um, but then we also come to the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can read First Corinthians chapter 15 there. That whole, that whole text basically deals with the idea that, you know what, if Christ wasn't risen, then we're lost <laughs> forever in our, our sins. Um, we don't have a lot of hope. Um, it says, now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preached to you what you received, in which you stand, and by which 
you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of in first importance what I also received, Paul writes, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas in the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive during that time, though some have fallen asleep. Um... So you have to conclude that if Jesus rose from the dead, then what he said about himself must be true. <laughs> That's why so many people attacked, attacked the resurrection. Um, because he claimed to be what? The only way to God. Mm-hmm. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. He claimed that he was divine, that he was God. And so his extraordinary claims that he made while he was alive are tied directly to the fulfillment of his prophecy when he says, hey, this temple will rise in three days, that he will be resurrected. And he was. And by the way, unlike Jesus, all the the founders and even the principal figures of cults and world religions around the world, they're either imaginary or they're dead. (laughs) Okay, not one has been resurrected. Um, it kind of puts things in perspective when you come and think about it. But the Jehovah Witnesses are there, quick, ready to, to answer, ready to distort or deny what the Bible affirms. In spite of using the Bible, they teach that Jesus' resurrection was only spiritual. It wasn't physical. He didn't really rise from the dead. Um, and that's a popular belief. Uh, Christian scientists believe that. The Moonies, almost a lot of cults do. Um, the two that don't are the Mormons and the Christadelphians. Um, but they're, they, they, they got weird stuff going on in other areas. So um, most of them deny or distort the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our salvation depends on the fact of that resurrection. If Christ had not risen from the dead, it really wouldn't matter whether he died or not. Because he wouldn't have been who he said he, he claimed to be. And then we come down to the second coming of Christ. Okay? In other words, the fact that we believe one day Christ will return. Now, you may disagree on when and how and all that. That's fine. Those are secondary issues. But the primary issue is that he will come back. Acts chapter 1, verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus whom you uh, was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he, Acts one eleven prophesies, tells us that he will return. Okay, that's God's word. Or Revelation one seven, behold, he is coming with clouds; every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. And yet, here we have the Jehovah Witnesses that say that Jesus has been around on earth, but he's invisible since nineteen fourteen. That's what they believe. Uh, and they had a date before that, but then they changed it to 1914. So Jesus has been sneaking around on earth, invisible, in stealth mode, um, ever since then. Uh, and so they sabotaged the second coming of Christ. So you have those basic uh, 12 doctrines. Now, you know, like I said, do Christians differ on how some of these things play out? You know, sure. 
Um, do, do some Christians say, well, the, the atonement of Christ is as specific as it general? Yes, they do. Okay. Um, do some people say, well, he's coming back, you know, pre, post, mid, whatever. Yeah, they do. That's, that's not what we're here to talk about. I, I like to agree with this guy, Peter. Uh, and he says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Okay. He was a Lutheran theologian and educator. And I think that that's what we really need to uh, understand as, as believers in Christ. Um, there's cults and non-Christian religions that constantly want to distort, they want to deny, they want to disregard the central truths of our faith. And we need to be aware of that. And it's really our responsibility, it's our privilege, you might say, to not only declare these truths, but also to defend them. But we have to do it with joy, love, confidence to a lost and dying world. So, next week we're going to look at the Jehovah Witnesses.